Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. I would have given up my entire bank savings. I would have given up my job. I would have given up all my friends just to be thin. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. I thought that thinness was going to change my life. I thought it was going to make me happy. I thought most of all, and this was very important, I thought it was going to get me love. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Why can't I get joy from anything? Frequent thing they heard... The nursing staff heard was it was it was when they whispered in the the ear of the patient when they're really doing it tough. I reckon you can do this. You know, I believe you're going to get there. The eating disorder cannot be more powerful than you are because you give it its power. It's a part of you. It took half of my life, my eating disorder, and it literally nearly took my life. But we, we've seen recovery in in kids, in teenagers in adults and in the elderly. So there's absolutely uh, hope. There is hope at endend.org.au. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the amazing Dr. Jennifer Gordiani with me. Now, Dr. Jennifer Gordiani is the founder and medical director of the Gordiani Clinic. Board certified in internal medicine, she completed her undergraduate degree at Harvard, medical school at Boston University School of Medicine, and her internal medicine residency at Chief Residency at Yale. Dr. Gordiani served as the medical director at the Acute Centre for Eating Disorders, the top hospital program in the country for critically ill adults with anorexia nervosa, prior to founding the Gordiani Clinic. The Gaudiani Clinic is a Denver-based outpatient medical clinic dedicated to people with eating disorders and disordered eating, which is a weight-inclusive setting that embraces treating people of all shapes, sizes, ages, and genders. The Gaudiani Clinic is licensed to practice in over 35 U.S. states via telemedicine and offers international professional consultation and education. Dr. Gaudiani has lectured nationally and internationally, is widely published in the scientific literature as well as on blogs, is a fellow of the Academy for Eating Disorders and is a recent former member of the editorial board of the International Journal of Eating Disorders and the Academy for Eating Disorders Medical Care Standards Committee. Dr. Gaudiani's first book, Sick Enough, A Guide to the Medical Complications of Eating Disorders is available on Amazon and is currently being translated into four other languages. You are truly incredible. Oh, Millie, thank you so much. It's really an amazing delight to be here with you and you yourself are incredible. Thank you. I really appreciate your kind words. I think that there is something about working in the eating disorder space, isn't there, where you are in it because you're passionate about it and we're all working together to try and make the biggest difference that we possibly can. And it's like with this tribe working towards this common goal. And so it's always wonderful to connect with others who are on that journey too. Now, I would love to ask you, what made you decide to specialize in eating disorders? Why are you so passionate about them? Yeah, that's a lovely question. And having been an English major whose focus was close reading poetry in college, despite the fact that I took my pre-med, ooh, they were so hard for me. So I really value the value of a narrative and a story. So my story goes something like this. I'm the oldest of three girls. I grew up in California. 
when I went off to college and went to medical school, my sister arrived at college in the same town and had developed an eating disorder. She's been very generous about allowing me to share that she is my inspiration. And I didn't know anything about eating disorders. I only knew that I loved her unconditionally and that was unlikely to be sufficient. And so I loved her through her years of her eating disorder as she sought really good professional care and she became fully recovered by her mid-20s. I had no idea that I was ever going to be an eating disorder physician, but her story stuck deeply in my heart. And we had a close family friend as well with type 1 diabetes and a concurrent eating disorder, which we didn't even have a language for back then, whose experience in the medical system was horrendous from the time she was a child because A, she had no voice and B, when she did try to express, I'm having trouble managing my insulin properly because I'm worried about my weight. Usually the older white endocrinologist would metaphorically pat her on the head and say, let's just get those glucoses under control first. And as I did my training and had those two particular loved ones in my heart, I realized I very much wanted to do things differently. And I wanted to bring my love of communication, my love of the story, my complete nerdy passion for the whole human and hope that patients could bring to me their expertise about their body and their story, and that I would bring to them what I think I know about medicine, and together we could negotiate a way forward that they felt they could consent to in whatever disease we were treating. So that was really what I emerged from my training with. And then I ended up at the inner city teaching hospital for the University of Colorado when I moved to Colorado with my husband. And unbeknownst to me, that housed the United States top medical stabilization program for critically ill adults with anorexia nervosa. And so when the opportunity came to help grow and run it, I immediately volunteered. I was pregnant at the time with my second daughter. And and it changed my life because this was my patient group. I fell in love with my patients. I loved the medicine. I loved the whole personness of it and the mind-body connection, the ability to bring my fierce feminism into it and to be able to teach others. So it was really an amazing opportunity for me that I'm so grateful for. And in 2016, I left for a variety of reasons, among them that I wanted to have a longer relationship with my patient. In the hospital, where I controlled everything, I would know them for two weeks and then they'd move on to eating disorder levels of care. I wanted to know them through all of the chapters of their lives and watch that, watch that story unfurl. And so I took a terrifying leap because I was in a very stable job with a stable salary and a stable reputation. And I had never been an outpatient physician. And I founded the clinic with a bunch of truly badass women. And we built it from the ground up. We thought, what do we want to do here? How can we do this differently? Because all of my patients, so many of my patients in the earlier years, had told me the harm they had come to at the hands of the medical system, whether it was ignorance of the problem, invalidation, minimization, reinforcement of the eating disorder, denial of severity of disease, engagement with diet culture that left people invisible. And so I thought, how can I create not only a workspace in which people feel they can give of themselves ultra passionately to this work and walk out the door at the end of the day and sustain and recharge themselves as whole humans. But also, how can I help provide a different kind of medical care 
in concert with an outpatient multidisciplinary eating disorder team such that things can change. And we set forth, we did a million things wrong. I continue to make mistakes all the time. And I really try to be super forthright about that because in my power and privilege, I think it's really helpful to be like, so I'll say to my team, oh, I fucked up. I'll say to my patient, oh, you know what? I fucked up. I'm so sorry. Let me try to repair this with you. Let me think about the system that allowed me to fuck up and let me own it. It's not a matter of falling on my sword. It's a matter of saying I am never going to be so quote unquote all powerful that I won't immediately own up to when I make a mistake because that's how I'm going to get better. We did that. And in the process, I realized that I needed to learn a ton more about internalized size bias, about social justice, intersectionality, and weight inclusivity. So my journey over the last six years has really been individual patient care, learning and implementing. It's just such a joy to hear that story. The moments where I really had felt tears come to my eyes when I could feel and hear that passion in you that you wanted to have that longer relationship with your patients. It's something that I dearly love about coaching. I have clients that have been with me for years now and it is the most incredible transition and to watch them flourish. To I have a client who last week gave birth to her first child and that was the thing that she wanted uh-huh. more than anything in the world when she reached out to me in desperation over Instagram one night and we've done it. It's just those moments where you've got that connection and you get to see that life come forth. It is one of the most, I feel, rewarding things about working in this space. Yes, it's tough and yes, it's hard, but you get to see people rediscover themselves and relearn how to live again and get that glow back. I adore it. I absolutely love it. And what makes those highs all the more meaningful is that you have sat in the shit with those patients. When they are just wallowing in misery, illness, despair, you just settle right down in the shit next to them and you put your arm around them and you say, I've got you. I got you. I don't know what's going to happen next, but I will be there with you. And then when you have those highs, I can't say how many times I've wept with joy, with sorrow. It's such a real experience. And I think, and this is not exactly a novel suggestion, but in the end, recovery has to come down to relationship. It's not that love can fix eating disorders because of course it cannot, but the connection with a team a feeling that you might be willing to take a trust fall with someone because they're saying things in a little bit of a different way that you feel more held as a whole human, and you say, I think I might be able to change that which I thought was unchangeable. And that is just the magic of what we get to do, what we're so lucky to do. I could not agree more. We're incredibly lucky to be able to do the work that we do. Is there a particular aspect of the work that you find most fulfilling? It's infinite. It's really infinite. But there are certain themes that are particularly in my heart right now. One of them is the ways in which the medical profession, again, I've already said this, but I'll flesh it out a little bit, fails and harms people with eating disorders. And it's not just that doctors don't know about eating disorders because I got zero hours of training on this in my very good education. And it's not just that if we're being frank, doctors also don't necessarily want to know about this because they fear the diagnosis of an eating disorder and they don't know what to do. But it's also that when this occurs, we are actually 
causing people to remain ill. We are bewildering our patients and we're making them think, I can't be helped. Because there's so many things that happen medically in their bodies that can be helped. But because no doctor has the expertise or wants to do this, they get stuck. And that's our fault as clinicians. That's not their fault, that beautiful human. So what I truly, absolutely adore is helping patients with both the measurable and the unmeasurable things that go wrong in their body so that there's less physical barrier to their doing the recovery work. For instance, all of the really intricate functional digestive stuff, all of the, Dr. G, I just have so many medical problems and I feel so crappy when I eat and I just can't make progress and maybe I just can't get better. And then because of how long I've been in this field, I get to say, oh, you know what? I've seen a pattern. I think I know what you have. I think I can help. So you're not hopeless. I can help you feel better. And then you can keep doing the hard work. And they do. So really serving our patients by acknowledging they have been ignored, harmed, and missed. Doing better so that their bodies feel better and they can have faith that maybe recovery can be possible. And then really saturating them with a sense of the fact that they get to use their voice for what we're going to do. The first question that I ask any patient in our two hour long initial consultation is asking them to share their goals and values with me. Because it's so easy in my power as a doctor to imagine what they want for themselves. And I can still make that mistake. But if I ask them from the very get go, what matters most to you? And what do you want? And what do you not want? Then I'm going to use that as my North Star. And again, I'll bring my medical knowledge to help them towards that place. So the more I can connect medical care and low, perhaps, eating disorder recovery with honoring them and their wishes, with naming the trauma they've experienced because they have an eating disorder, which is existentially threatening, and the trauma they've experienced in the recovery process, which removes autonomy and which forces people to do things that may be life-saving but can be unbelievably terrifying, then we can have this baseline and extraordinary change can happen. And I just love that. If you were to sum up your approach or philosophy on eating disorder treatment, how would you do that? I would say my goal is to take a whole person, social justice and anti-diet informed, weight-inclusive fat positive lens and filter through it my medical knowledge and expertise and experience with those who suffered eating disorders in order to create an alliance that heals and inspires. Beautiful. Beautiful. I feel like it needs to be written up on the wall. (laughs) What do you believe makes the Gordiani Clinic unique? Oh my gosh. There's really nothing else like it in the U.S. There are definitely wonderful doctors who are managing those with eating disorders, but there's really nothing else like it, which is both something I'm proud of and something that I'm horrified about because there's so many medical problems that come with eating disorders in bodies of all shapes and sizes. And that means that people just aren't getting the care they need. I think that our approach that allows really detailed knowledge of patients over time, unfortunately, is only achieved in a non-insurance model. And I'm a liberal woman who believes in high quality health care for all. So that is really devastating that I charge a lot of money for our services. Unfortunately, if we did an insurance model, there would be no clinic because insurance would never pay for what we do. And we couldn't possibly have the long relationships, the long sessions, the family sessions, the intensive team communication 
the non-hierarchical quarterbacking of complex situations to help individuals do their recovery work in ways that they can tolerate and embrace, oftentimes in the outpatient setting, sometimes needing to go to higher levels of care. We do try to offset that through a number of scholarships, but it has to be acknowledged that this is not just about, oh, it's great to have medical knowledge and to have expertise. The reality is that part of the reason that we're able to do this care is because we're not burdened by having to see 20 patients a day to keep the doors open. But my team as well is absolutely unique in the country. To a person, anybody who interacts directly in a clinical way with patients has over a decade of eating disorder experience and a profound passion for the work. So everyone on the team knows every single one of my patients. And we don't have therapists and dietitians on our team. We Usually we get referrals from individuals who are dietitians and therapists in the community. So patients usually come with those individuals they need a doctor. But my team members are so brilliant and they continue to teach me. We continue to do really thoughtful work of our own in our team supervision. How does what we bring positively and negatively influence the care we're giving? Where does the care suffer because today my distress tolerance was lower and so I went too quickly with something? Where does care benefit from my enormous affection for the patient and where does my enormous affection for the patient sometimes lead me to be too permissive of a tough situation that's evolving? So we try to be incredibly humble and thoughtful and always recognize we need and want to learn more. You spoke before about family sessions. Uh, it's something that I'm incredibly passionate about having the parents, carers, loved ones incorporated into the treatment process. So how do you do that? Well, uh, it's wonderful and it's really unique to each individual family. I see patients, I've probably seen patients at this point from ages 11 to 73 and so the family dynamics of who people bring along with them as my patient can be completely different. I believe wholeheartedly any time a patient is willing to bring their family in, how can we communicate by email? Can we invite them into sessions? Can we remind them what a precious part they are of their child, partner, sister, brother, grandchild life? And with my patient, there are times when patients will say, this is really hard. I'm really frustrated. My mom said that my mom is goosing me about my weight again. And we know without a question that families do not cause eating disorders. And we also know that there are factors that can help or can hinder a recovery process and that families can really learn over the course of a recovery, how they can show up in ways that help heal themselves and help heal their loved one. But in those moments, what I've learned to say through doing a little bit of emotion-focused family therapy training, really just to become a better mom and a better clinician, not because I do therapy ever, is to lead with, for instance, your mom loves you so much. Your mom loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And it sounds like last night she said something that wasn't as helpful. But to remind them of that incredibly strong love bond that is there, even when the way it shows is into the place that a patient might want. It's so important. I'm constantly doing that as a coach as well, um, because I know my own mum for many, many years took care of me. And of course, there were moments where she didn't quite say the right thing. But at the end of the day, that love and that hope that our families hold for us we're in that, when we are in the absolute depths of despair 
is immeasurably valuable. And I think sometimes when we are in the depths of the eating disorder, with that tunnel vision, we can take it for granted. And so it's so important to be reminded of how how lucky we are to have that intense love and care around us. For any parents and carers or friends of loved ones who are journeying uh, through an eating disorder, what are the most important red flags for them to look out for if they're concerned about loved one developing an eating disorder? Yeah, that's a lovely question. Let me answer that. And then let me also try to follow on with anyone who's in the midst of supporting someone with an eating disorder. How do you get through? What are the things you think about? We know that the signs to watch for when someone is maybe developing an eating disorder is that they change their eating behaviors at table, that they may not be as comfortable having a family meal. They may start to develop food rules that initially seem health-based and lauded by society, coaches, teachers, friends, but that may slowly spiral into what is evidently not adequate. They may begin eating more secretively. They may start binging, and you can find detritus of that in various places. They may begin purging. And what's really important to say is that the vast majority of those with eating disorders do not become emaciated. And so having that as a standard, while it is what we think of first as a society, that is not the standard to think about. A person who is beginning an eating disorder may lose weight, may maintain weight, or have their weight rise. But it is relative, even though there are millions of people, of course, who do end up underweight with an eating disorder, there are many millions more who do not. And it's the most common thing to say as a family member, oh gosh, well, they're not officially underweight, so is there really a problem? And the answer is yes, there is. And I think that changes around mood, around prior engagement with other loved ones in the family. All of these things can be real signs to watch out for, as can just preoccupation with body. And we know that people of all genders get eating disorders. So it may not be a preoccupation with losing weight per se that will motivate somebody. For some, they're looking for comfort. For some, they're looking for numbness and escape from a world that's feeling too hard. And any of the eating disorder behaviors can help someone numb. But in particular, young boys are increasingly pressured to have a body type that looks lean and muscular. And so they can end up, again, seeming to start with traits and behaviors that society put lots of pressure positively on, only to end up in a place that's really dark and over-controlled and unwell. So for parents just watching that, I think that's really important. Briefly, I just want to speak to, of course, what the whole books have been and could be written about, which is in perhaps even the early days of supporting somebody with an eating disorder. What are some of the things to just think about? One of them is the medical system, while it is necessary, has a high likelihood of undercutting a recovery process. And the commonest first part of that is a doctor setting a target weight too low or minimizing the effect of weight loss. For instance, A child who's been having, a young person of any age who's been having eating disorder behaviors and may have been losing weight might come into the pediatrician's office and not formally be underweight. And the pediatrician very often, using their own internalized size bias, may say, they're not officially underweight yet, so things are probably okay. Disaster. Nothing could satisfy the eating disorder more than hearing, see, I told you how humiliating that we came here. So the medical system may undermine you. And you may have to prepare your child for that in advance. You may have to try to prepare the physician for it in advance, which is something no loved one should have to do. 
In addition, this may be a very important time for parents to begin their own work separately. We all live imbued by a diet culture society and by the unbelievable pressures towards thin privilege. So we all have baggage about our bodies and our food as parents, as grandparents, uncles, sisters, whatever it may be. When entering this process, it's a great time to do your own work and say, how have I been speaking about my body? How have I been speaking about food? In the interest of trying to raise children, which of course every parent is trying to do their best by their child with quote unquote healthy eating habits, have I accidentally created a home where there are too many food rules and where we've created a culture of fear about certain foods that actually undermines recovery efforts? How do I speak about my body? How do I speak about movement? Can I heal some of that in myself as I show up for my child? And I think the third thing I want to say, which is really important for parents who are first going through this, is to ask themselves, what are we trying to solve for? So for instance, your teenager who is relatively newly diagnosed is furious at your insistence that you're going to watch their food, prepare their food, help them, make sure they eat everything. And the teenager may say, how dare you impede on my independence. This is ridiculous. This is not what a parent should be doing when someone is my age. I can't bear it. How dare you? And so the parent might might, might reasonably say, oh, you're right. I don't want to do this to you. You don't want it done to you. Oh, do we have to? Like, can we, is there another way? But actually we might say, what are we solving for here? And the parent might say to their loved one, my darling, if what you're solving for is for me not to hound you, I want that too. You eat all your food in a timely manner without my goading you, and I won't have hounded you. If that's what you're solving for, there's a very easy solution to this. It's you doing the work with my loving support and not resisting and making me push. If what you're actually trying to do, though, is wear me out to the point where I give in to your eating disorder, that is never going to happen because I love you too much, and I'm going to sit here and do this with you until you're recovered. Those are such fabulous tips. And I know that there will be many listeners out there who've been furiously writing them down. I thank parents and carers and loved ones. They're such an integral, integral part of recovery. And often they are overlooked in terms of support at worldwide. I think there needs to be more community support groups out there, more resources. And it's definitely something that I'm incredibly passionate about trying to create more of here in Australia. Now, all too often in Australia, we see people relapse because of a lack of continuum of care post-treatment as they transition to either a different level of care or back into the community. What is your process for this at the Gaudiani Clinic? Yeah, that's a great question. We see this in the U.S. as well. And we know that eating disorders by their nature are unlikely to possess a linear, smooth recovery. There are going to be faults and stops and regressions, relapses, amazing times, challenging times. If we can anticipate that's going to be the reality of the recovery pattern, it's going to be chaos. It's going to be, as Brene Brown calls it, a street fight. It helps to set expectations, first of all. And then that can be really tough because we know that the biological family members of someone with an eating disorder are probably more likely than the average person to want a plan that is linear and we can check off boxes. And if we do it right, we know we will have an outcome that is guaranteed. Absolutely. And, oh my God. <laughs> right? I mean, good to me. But we know that almost never happens in eating disorder care. So setting that expectation is really helpful. 
and saying you're not doing anything wrong and your loved one isn't doing anything wrong either if there are kerfuffles and if there are times when really things get quite bleak. And to say that doesn't mean it's going wrong. It just means we're going to keep working on it. It means we've had the opportunity to learn there was a roadblock we didn't anticipate or that we didn't have the proper preparation for. Now we know, okay, next time we're going to be ready for this one. It's finals week. It's spring break. It's a breakup with a partner. Whatever it may be, we're going to resource you next time so that you are able to bear this without going back into your behavior. So stepping out of higher levels of care is a very complex problem. And really, it's all about money from my perspective. Very often in the United States, insurance will just decide to cut. You've had enough residential care. You've had enough day treatment. These are based on ridiculous, arbitrary, non-evidence-based rules that are usually sizes, that are usually focused on weight gain, weight loss, when that really may not be at the core of what's going on. And as a result, the eating disorder voice says, you're a failure. We're always going to have this. Insurance didn't think you were sick enough to get this treatment ongoing. I guess every time we make just a bit of progress, it's true, we lose our support, which is just so devastating. It's devastating for everyone involved. What I try to do when individuals begin in the outpatient setting with me is to set, if needed, clear guidelines by which we all know they'll need to step up to a higher level of care. Unless they come to me saying, I really want to go to a higher level of care. And then I'm like, okay, great, I've got you. I'll help you get to the right place. When they're stepping down, I really try to learn everything about the patient, their family, their social structure, their friends, what makes them tick, what motivates them, and use that to help them achieve what they want and to set really clear criteria for what they need to do to remain outpatient. And very often, increasingly, I will try to find a coach for them. Because that coach can be such a brilliant bridge from the surround sound care of day treatment or residential into the relative lonely wasteland of outpatients. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something I see as a coach all the time is there are myriads of ways that coaches can be they're helpful, but that's such a valuable space that we can step into and help with that transition because we are there 24-7. We're there to go, hang on a minute here, remember about this and remember about that and this goal and this boundary and just gently guiding and walking that journey with them because it can be such a really difficult one. Do you believe that having clinicians with lived experience on a treatment team is valuable? Oh, it's brilliant. I love it. I think that it's any stigma that ever occur, existed around this should by now be completely obliterated by the unbelievably valuable nature of people with lived experience on a treatment team. To have the authenticity to say, I've lived something like this. I know how hard it is. I made different decisions one day at a time, and you can too. Mm. That carries enormous power. And what I'll often say to my patients is, as an apology, actually, I don't have lived experience. I do as a clinician with all of the beloved patients whose stories I've held in my heart over the years. I do as a sister, but I don't personally. And so I will acknowledge that to them. And I just think the world of having individuals with lived experience on the treatment team. Yes. And we have our dear friend and colleague, Carolyn, to thank for being the pioneer in that respect. Ever grateful for her work. She's amazing. 
Now, your book, Sick Enough, A Guide to the Medical Complications of Eating Disorders, is truly incredible. And I mean that in every sense of the word. And as I said to you prior to this interview, it's it's a book that I recommend to my parents and clients all the time. It's absolutely essential reading for anybody who has been touched by an eating disorder or wants to understand more about them. And as Jenny Schaefer said, this book is a lifesaver. I truly believe that it is. You've said that in writing it, you hope to establish that anyone with an eating disorder is sick enough to seek help. Now, was there a particular catalyst for you deciding to write it? Yes, there were a few. And as usual, the planets have to align in just a particular way for a big project like this to get off the ground. I had been thinking for a period of time after I started the clinic, that one of the pillars of founding the clinic was to improve the quality of medical care for those with eating disorders around the world. And I tried to do that through speaking opportunities, through podcasts, lectures, and blog work, and little videos that our clinic puts out. But I realized that there were a lot of people clinicians, family members, and individuals affected who would never get to see or engage with me and who could benefit from my years of experience about what happens to bodies when they're experiencing an eating disorder. So I knew in the back of my mind that it had to be written. And then I had this very dangerous, delicious combination of things happen, which was I saw the movie Wonder Woman twice in a week, obsessed, phenomenal, loved it so much. And I went and spoke at the Female Athlete Conference in Boston, Massachusetts, and met a bunch of badass women clinicians. And we were talking about things that felt fierce and real and important. And I came back and I was like, okay, let's do this. And I had a very Jerry Maguire, like (laughs) trying to write a book proposal, which Carolyn Costin very helpfully assisted me in structuring. And so I sat out on the porch and I just did it. I'm a huge procrastinator. And in this case, I just kept telling myself that you speak it every day, write it down. So just around the time that I finished writing the proposal, I got an unexpected email from the head mental health editor for Rutledge Books. Mm. And she said, hi, Dr. G, I heard that you're going to be speaking at this conference. I wonder if you've considered writing a book. Mm. And I was like, here's my proposal. So that is how it came to be. And then given that I am a serious procrastinator, I decided once it was accepted that I would write for an hour and a half each morning before my kids woke up, only Monday through Friday. And so I would get up in the morning and put on my sweats and make my decaf coffee because caffeine makes me too anxious. That has tons of whole milk in it. Coffee for me is a vehicle for whole milk. I would pull my my, my armchair over by the fire and prop my feet up to warm and I would just tap away and just say, keep writing it down. This, you speak it all the time. Just keep writing it down. And so I did. And over the course of eight-ish months or so, I got it written and then we did a lot of editing. It is humbling to look back on it now and see all of the places where I'm like, nope, I would do that differently now. But that's why I'll eventually write a second edition. I will update it and bring my newer thinking to it. And that was it. I am so thrilled that you managed to put your procrastination out the window and that you got it out there because I know that it has saved lives already and it will continue to do so and bring on the second edition, I say. Now, talk to me about how you use objective evidence of clients' bodies suffering to break through the distortion that they are fine and don't need to recover. Love it. 
this is really one of the foundations of my medical practice in this field. And the idea is that we know that almost all eating disorders come with that belief, I'm not I'm just not that bad. I've seen pictures of people who looked worse. I have personally been worse myself. I have X, Y, and Z normal. Therefore, I'm fine. And I should continue doing my eating disorder behaviors. In fact, I should probably go harder. That's really lies at the core of the eating disorder psychopathology. And it, it makes so much sense to our patients when they think it in the moment. Because as I often say, the eating disorder has the incredible fortune, misfortune from my perspective, of having access to their beautiful brains. These brains that are so brilliant and communicative, so convincing and thoughtful, the ED just gets to use that for its own end. So it says you're not sick enough for all these reasons. Plus your doctor said X, Y, Z last year, plus this and that, you're fine. So what's been really helpful for me as a physician is to know in great detail what happens to bodies when they're not getting enough nutrition. And we know that restriction is a key part in almost all eating disorders, regardless of body shape or size, regardless of diagnosis, restriction is a key part of it. What happens to bodies when there's binging? What happens to bodies when there's purging? And over the years, I've come up with any number of ways on a physical exam and even more importantly, through the narrative of listening to what they're experiencing in their body and knowing the questions to ask, to be able to then reframe back to the patient, here's why you're not fine. Here's why your body is, in fact, responding to the ravages of this eating disorder and why there is urgency to us making changes. And I'll tell them any number of things, including you may find motivation in the days when your team and your family and your physician are most fearful. There is critical urgency. There's a critical finding, a critical lab or vital sign. You may find that fear useful to begin making some change. But it's amazing how majestic our bodies are. That no matter what's been going on, as soon as they have just even a few days of more adequate nutrition, they get better. Not recovered, but they improve. The crisis passes. And so what I'll tell my patients when there's a critical moment is, look, we can use this now. But I'm going to tell you, you are a mammal who is designed to survive. So within some short period of time, you're going to feel better. This is going to report out better on your blood panel. Then we have to find a different motivation to continue improving. And I'll sometimes say to my patients, you wouldn't wait until your beloved family dog was passing out from hunger to feed it. Of course, we would understand that was completely abusive. And yet you may hold yourself to a standard that if X, Y, or Z is not true in me, I must not be sick. So that's one piece that I think about. I also use just everyday findings that patients don't even know they can connect with their eating disorder to help show them that their body is suffering. So for instance, somebody may have perfectly normal vital signs, perfectly normal blood tests, and perhaps even everything on their exam checks out pretty well. They do have cold hands and feet. And when you talk to them about how they function, they say, well, yeah, I mean, I'm bloated all the time and I feel really full quite quickly and constipation is really annoying. You say, okay, let's really dissect that. Because your cold hands and feet mean that your beautiful cave person brain, that operating system that runs us subconsciously to survive starvation, has altered your body function in 
subtle, key survival-oriented ways so that you can get through this. So it has actually reduced blood flow to your hands and feet in order to spare calories. It has slowed your digestive function so that it spares calories and it's not wasting them on a happy, wriggling digestive system that works properly. You have gastroparesis of malnutrition regardless of your body weight. You have constipation of malnutrition regardless of your body weight. Your bloating may come from any number of causes that are intimately related with your eating disorder. This is why your body's not doing well. These are some motivations to recover. And of course, one needn't have body problems in order to be sick enough to recover from an eating disorder. Just the behaviors themselves are terribly intrusive, but it can be helpful to show that there are things that aren't working and they're from your ED and they can get better. Of course. Now, I know that like Carolyn and I, you're a big believer in the power of using metaphors in eating disorder recovery. And you have a particular metaphor that I love about the dog in the street. Can you please share this with our listeners? Yeah, I would love to. So I was sitting with a patient once in my hospital position and we were overlooking this busy road and she had seen earlier that there was a dog that had walked into the street and all of the cars stopped. And she said, I watched that and sometimes I feel like the dog in the street that people stop and stare at me, but they're not helping me. Because in that moment, when all of the cars are stopped, I'm terrified. I don't know what to do. I'm overwhelmed. My brain stops and I don't know what to do next. I need someone to help me. But then the ED also resists that and it's so exhausting and difficult. And I said, as we talked about it, if someone gets out of their car and picks up that dog, the dog doesn't have to know what to do next. The dog doesn't have to know this is a busy street. This is the way I should walk. This is how to get safe. What's really most helpful, though, is that the dog not struggle and bite. Allow the help. Allow someone to come to you and offer trusted care. You may not know what happens next. You may not know how to do this. Sometimes when you can't proactively, joyously seek recovery, you can choose not to resist it. It's so, so important. And I hope that listeners out there who may be in a space where they have been consciously or unconsciously resisting can use that analogy and come back to that and just think about that dog in those arms and even maybe write it down on an affirmation card, choose not to resist. It's such a powerful statement. Now, you often use the term definitive medical stability. Explain to me what you mean by that. I think that medical stability exists on a lot of different planes. And it depends on your level of care and it depends on what you're seeking to experience. Our society is obsessed with the construct of health in really complicated ways. Health in Western culture implies independence. It carries a tinge of morality. You've made good choices. It carries a tinge of not being dependent upon others because especially in the United States, at least, there's this belief that we should all be lone cowboys doing it ourselves. And it carries a belief that there's just something better about someone who's healthy. So I think my perspective on what medical stability looks like has evolved over time, understanding that a denominator of capital H health might not be achievable for everybody because of their genetic makeup, because maybe they also have cancer, because maybe they also have rheumatoid arthritis. That there may not be this sort of, in fact, there, there clearly is not one glowing size fits all of health. Usually these days, I will try to talk about medical stabilization 
in language that the patient values. So for instance, if they want to be able to go back to work, engage with their loved ones more, and feel less uncomfortable, then we may look on a bunch of different levels at digestive function, endocrine function, strength as they perhaps re-engage a relationship with movement in the process of their recovery, good, satisfactory, abundant food throughout the day without rules upon it, and that over time, their body heals the ways in which it's been protective against malnutrition, it's been protective against purging, it's been protective against binging, and begins to function in a way that feels more optimal to the individual. There will be many listeners out there who are very familiar with refeeding syndrome, but for those who aren't, can you please explain what it is and why it is so dangerous? Yes. Refeeding syndrome is a biological process that occurs when someone who has not been eating enough begins to take in nutrition again. A number of things happen. One, our insulin perks up. Insulin gets a bad rap these days, but it's a vitally important hormone that helps. It is responsible for allowing glucose to move from our bloodstream into our cells to feed them so that they can do the things that cells do. That same insulin also will drive phosphorus into cells, leaving low blood phosphorus levels. Low blood phosphorus levels can cause the heart to stop when it gets really severe. In addition, higher insulin as people begin to nourish again can cause retention of salt and water. And so people can retain fluid in a way that's either triggering and uncomfortable all the way up to filling the lungs and filling the brain with fluid. Now, historically, we used to say that the way to fix or ameliorate the risk of refeeding syndrome was to start with very low calories and to very slowly increase them. We were wrong. We were actually wrong. We now know that while refeeding syndrome is a serious syndrome that we mustn't miss, nonetheless, if you watch for the phosphorus level, depending on the level of acuity, daily, weekly, et cetera, during early refeeding, you'll catch it and you can replace the phosphorus levels. And as fluid accumulation occurs in some people, that can be managed and monitored. We now know that the underfeeding syndrome is actually more prevalent and in some ways more dangerous than the refeeding syndrome, where we were just not giving enough nutrition initially to those with particularly anorexia nervosa. And so we end up leaving brains and bodies in a state of distress and malnutrition too long. We now know you should start calories higher and increase faster in order to get that body what it needs. Let's talk about purging. From a medical perspective, how does it affect the body and what is the risk of these physical effects becoming irreversible over time? Yeah, purging can happen in one of typically three ways, either through vomiting, through laxative abuse, which causes diarrhea, or through diuretic abuse, which causes excessive urine output. Some people also consider exercise to be a means of purging as far as compensatory caloric burn. I don't tend to. The physiology is quite different and exercise is not for calorie burning. Focused on this, the first three that I talked about, dehydration is a huge problem and shifts in electrolytes, especially low potassium, which can cause muscle cramps and the heart to stop or low sodium as there's an imbalance of salt and water in the blood, sometimes low phosphorus and magnesium as well. The things to watch for on the lab panel for somebody who's purging include the bicarbonate level that's risen, usually above 30. I think the units are the same in Australia. I'm not sure. 
and a potassium that's fallen quite low. Not only is the act of purging medically dangerous, but the act of stopping purging can be medically complicated too. Because when somebody's been purging for a very long time, their cave person brain says, I'll save you. You must be dying of dehydration in the desert. We'll make sure to produce excess amounts of a hormone that if we come upon an oasis that has salt and water, we'll hold on to those because they're life-saving and they may not come again for a period of time. And so, in fact, people who purge chronically will overproduce the hormone aldosterone, which is produced by the adrenal glands that fit like little baseball caps on top of the kidneys. And aldosterone causes a couple of really important things to happen when it's overproduced. It can cause severe rebound swelling or fluid retention when someone stops purging and just doesn't even get IV fluids, but just begins to eat and drink properly. People's bodies can change overnight in terrifying ways that are sometimes also medically complicated. And when that happens, the eating disorder goes, I told you, I told you that if we changed anything, it would be so unsafe. This is completely dangerous. Go back to what you were doing. We are a hopeless case. But in fact, if you watch for this syndrome, which is called pseudo barter syndrome, can be treated and you can anticipate it with the patient. Hey, I wonder if when you stop purging, you get really swollen and freak out and your cheeks get really swollen too. Oh, I can help that. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to use a hormone blocker called spironolactone. It's a very old, very cheap medication. When we block that hormone, we can really reduce the amount of swelling that you get. We can replace potassium. It's going to help your tummy work better. Your digestion will work better. We can help those parotid glands in your cheeks become less swollen, which will be less triggering as well. And if you hang in there with me and not purge and gently rehydrate and move forward in recovery, this is going to heal. Things that don't heal can include dental damage. Really, oftentimes people spend enormous amounts of money replacing and, and fixing teeth after years of acid damage. Almost everything else can heal completely, though. I will say that those who abuse laxatives have the hardest time coming off of them because unlike the other two means of purging, the pseudo-barter syndrome from laxative abuse is so severe that people can potentially expect a year of excessive fluid retention, even when they're doing everything recovery-oriented and the clinician is doing everything they can properly medically. It's very tough, and you have to really just resource them Sit with that, recognize it will heal. Do not abuse the laxatives. This is going to get better. I think often people aren't aware of the full extent of all of those effects. So thank you for explaining that so succinctly. In your book, you talk about the sponge metaphor and finding self-compassion. So for those listeners who haven't yet read your amazing book, can you share that with us? Yeah, absolutely. The sponge metaphor has probably, it has to do with outpatient medicine as well. I think that I used it more in my inpatient work. Essentially, when someone is purging, they're going around life like a hard, dry sponge, like you've gone on holiday for a week and you come back and it's just a brick. And when they begin to renourish, stop purging, hydrate properly, what we don't want them to become is the stopping wet sponge that you can wring out and that's a fluid overload model. What we want to do is help them gently rehydrate and medically properly support their pseudobarter syndrome so that they just become a soft, pliant sponge. And you can't squeeze any extra out of it, but it's a soft, pliant sponge. Now, it's worth saying that for people who are 
exquisitely sensitive to the most minute change in body. The difference in appearance and feel between a hard, dry sponge and a soft, pliant sponge is very meaningful. So I will let my patients know this is going to be a shit show. Just properly rehydrating may change your weight a lot. It may change the appearance of your body a lot. Even when there's no excessive fluid, hang in there. You cannot live life as the raisin version of yourself. So this is going to happen. It's a question of how we can make it happen without making you the sopping sponge. And if you're tolerating the distress without the ED saying it's all from the food you've eaten. No, it's just from rehydrating. And the self-compassion story I think you're referring to is Something that I learned from the brilliant Dr. Kim McCallum, psychiatrist who's been a dear friend for many years, she spoke at a conference about a self-compassion exercise, which I was I continue to use to this day. She said, let's say that you have an experience that normally you would speak to yourself very critically about. Oh, that was so stupid. I shouldn't have said that. That's really embarrassing. I feel so ashamed. And instead, let's label that experience painful. That was a painful experience for me because I questioned what I said afterwards and I wasn't sure if it had done the right thing. Once you label it painful, that core of self-compassion that lives within all of us has a greater tendency to be able to wrap its arms around you and say, I'm sorry, that was hard. And to give yourself that kindness and not further torture yourself with meanness or self-criticism, but just acknowledge that was really painful. And it just gives us a bit more space to be kind. I think self-compassion is such a key piece of recovery. And it's so important to to learn how to cultivate that within ourselves when, especially if you've been in that eating disorder mind for so many years, often there's there's very, very little self-compassion left and it takes a while to build it up, but it's a, an important piece of the puzzle. Now, I know that your views on exercise during recovery have changed in more recent years. Tell me more about this. I used to believe in the all-knowing wisdom of an inpatient doctor who controlled everything for the first two weeks of a patient's recovery, that exercise was a privilege of full recovery. How wrong I was. (laughs) How much being in the truly woolly wilderness of outpatient medicine where I control nothing (laughs) and where people are living in their home lives except for the half an hour weekly or bi-weekly that they see me, I've learned that I was wrong. That is too strict. And that in fact, when we tell patients that you can't exercise because exercise is going to burn calories and we're trying to spare calories right now, you are unwittingly reinforcing what the ED always says, which was exercise is to burn calories. This turns out scientifically to be bullshit. And I'll tell you why in a second. Instead, what I now understand is that if someone has at least reasonable medical stability, heart rate, electrolytes, hydration, and proper fueling to support the body in doing what you want it to do, then they should be encouraged if they wish to and can psychologically safely do so, begin under supervision, engaging a relationship with their body that honors strength, ability, and the joy of doing things in the world. And that that can be stepped up over time, ideally so that the athletic identity, whether you're a serious athlete or just enjoy moving, can begin to replace the ED identity. Here's the reason that I now understand that my prior thinking was quite wrong. One of the reasons is that I've seen so many of my patients absolutely flourish under the reintroduction of movement quite early in recovery 
so that they feel that they're emerging into a powerful, capable body, not just one that's there to be looked at or to be criticized by themselves. But the science behind it is fascinating. Every study that's reasonable shows that exercise doesn't cause weight loss. It makes people stronger. It makes their cardiovascular outcomes in the long term improve, but it does not cause weight loss. And the reason for this is that our cave person brain, as I say again and again, is always operating to maintain a status quo to keep us stable and unchanging. And so we found some fascinating science now behind this, where, for instance, a nomadic tribe had very sophisticated metabolic measurements done. And the scientists were a bunch of folks who thought, in a very diet culturally way, we're going to show those quote unquote couch potatoes that if you really move a lot, you need lots more calories and burn lots more. Well, to their shock, they found that in measuring the metabolism of these individuals who walk miles upon miles a day, their metabolic rate was identical to that of a quote unquote couch potato. And the reason is this, our cave person brain modulates our very dynamic metabolism to save calories. So these people walk miles and miles a day and their metabolism has shifted to need fewer calories. They're not burning more. We are not systems of calories in, calories out. The calorie itself was come up with by a scientist who took a known quantity of a nutrient and incinerated it until it was charcoal and said that is the energy content of this nutritional item. Well, I hate to tell you, but we do not incinerate our food. We do not shit charcoal. This is just not how people work. And the reality is that when we eat too little, our metabolism falls to protect us and save us. So we need fewer calories. So I cannot tell you how many times I've seen a patient who says, I'm eating that X number of calories a day and my weight isn't changing, so clearly I can't eat more. And I say, nope, wrong science. When you eat more, your metabolism will speed up again to keep you stable. So if you eat less, your metabolism falls. If you eat more, your metabolism rises. Now, in either super extreme over time, you're probably going to see some changes in weight, but not in everybody. I can't tell you how many patients I have with normal weight anorexia who purely restrict and their weight continues to rise. So calories in, calories out is bullshit. It is mechanistic. It is scientifically untrue. And exercise is not for burning calories. It's for getting strong. I love it. We don't shit charcoal. I'll remember that. <laughs> I love it. Perfect. Now, gut issues are something that many people, including myself, struggle with during and after recovering from an eating disorder. Often the intensity of these symptoms can be really debilitating and getting a concise diagnosis and treatment plan can be very difficult. What would be your advice for people who are currently navigating this? That's a great question. I think it's to give an enormous amount of compassion, to give validation. It's very common for doctors who have not worked on their own distress intolerance to minimize someone's experience by means of taking themselves off the hook instead of witnessing and walking with. So the patient says, I'm exhausted. I can't bear it. I can't stand this anymore. This is too much. And the doctor may say, well, why are you complaining like this? Why aren't you just grateful that you've made any progress? I just, if you're not going to have a good attitude, I don't know how we can manage this. And that's the kind of thing that throws somebody deeply into a shame spiral Mm -hmm. and undoes so much hard work. So the answer to that is I love you. I see you. Is there something we can change in the treatment plan right now that might give you a moment to pause 
For instance, as some people get further into their recovery process, again, regardless of body shape or size, they may find that trauma comes up more because they may have a brain that's less numb. And so the trauma thoughts are much more present. And now the eating disorder is battling the trauma because the numbness helps protect the person against the PTSD. So we might say, let plateau your eating recovery process here as long as you need to and do some trauma work. And once you feel you're equipped to bear an ongoing piece of work in your recovery, then let stepwise engage that process. And so you really try to listen to the patient and continue to give them hope and positivity to try to counter their own perfectionistic tendency because so many people with eating disorders are so accomplishment oriented. And they might come to you and say, I'm so upset right now because I didn't do X, Y, or Z and I don't want to disappoint the team and I'm really mad at myself. And you say, oh, wait, my darling. No, let's talk about the things you have bravely done. Not focus on the ones you haven't done quite as we hoped or quite as you hoped. Let's focus on the positive while honoring that the challenges are really hard. And I was just today speaking with one of my patients about one of the most exhausting things about recovery, and I'd love to hear if you agree with this, my patients have thus far, but I would be grateful for your thoughts, is that at a certain point, when you're really trying hard to recover, multiple times a day, you feel torn in two, and you feel you have profoundly disappointed an aspect of yourself after each meal. You have either profoundly disappointed the eating disorder by doing the recovery thing, or you have profoundly disappointed the recovery-oriented part of yourself by being incapable of completing, for instance. And so multiple times a day, you're experiencing a profound sense of disappointment, which for those who are accomplishment-oriented is horrifying and exhausting. Is that something that you have? I can completely resonate with that. I can take myself back. I mean, I've been fully recovered now for six years, but I can take myself back immediately and remember that. And it is exhausting. I think it's one of it, it is one of the hardest and most exhausting things I've ever done recovering from an eating disorder. It is relentless. It is 24-7. And there is that constant battle between those two selves. And it's hard. But what I always say to my clients is that it is worth it. And you've got to keep going. I have Millie's three C's, which is conscious, consistent commitment. And it's like you've got to consciously, consistently commit to that freedom that you absolutely deserve. And there'll be so many things thrown at you that make you want to falter, that make you want to turn back. But it's like that children's book, uh, we're going on a bear hunt. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. You've got to go through it. And as you say, we've got to be there sitting in the shit with the clients going, we've got you, we see you, and we know that you can do this. And I think on that point, I would like to ask you, what would you say to people out there who have been written off by professionals, just as I was, written off as a lost cause and have been told that the best that they can hope for is to learn to exist whilst managing their eating disorder? I would say that every person can recover from an eating disorder, potentially. Everyone has the potential. And that as long as you have a spark of light in you to make change, even if day in and day out, you're having a hard time doing the behaviors that are congruent with that spark, then people should show up and cheer you on 
They should question, have you had the medical issues addressed? Have you had the trauma issues addressed? Have you had the comorbid psychiatric issues that people pretend aren't there because they're scared by anorexia? Have you had the ADHD, the OCD, the deep suicidal depression? Have those been addressed? Have we tried every possible thing in the book? Have we tried to start with a harm reduction strategy that you can imagine moving toward and then subsequently ask, are you ready to take even more steps? Have we done everything we can from a sophisticated perspective to show up for you? I also want to hold faith for the reality of the very, very few patients who truly cannot make change after a lifetime of trying because they do exist and they must experience our compassion and our validation as well. Very few people fall into that category, but they do exist. And I don't want their voices to be silent. Of course, it's really important to to hold space for that. But I love that you truly believe that everybody has that little spark inside. And if we are able to harness that in such a way and be supported, full recovery is possible, which I think is it's so important for people to hear that wind so often in the medical fraternity, that is not what is said. As a clinician, what do you hold hope for in terms of the future of eating disorder treatment? The thing that I feel most hopeful about and want to continue to foster and propagate is a more weight-inclusive perspective among treaters. Even as recently as 10 years ago, it was not uncommon for dietitians and therapists to respond to someone saying, I don't want to get fat by saying, don't worry, you won't. Very harmful because it stigmatizes the fact that some bodies are going to end up bigger and some bodies are going to end up smaller because body diversity is real and beautiful. So I have really been heartened to learn myself and to see, at least amongst the dietitians and therapists in the ED world, much more of a health at every size, weight inclusive philosophy emerging. It is necessary You cannot address eating disorders without stopping stigmatizing fatness. And now we need to get the doctors on board. And that's going to be a much taller order. But this must become the future because as long as we privilege thinness above all else, as long as we allow our own internalized size stigma to show up, in the therapy room, in the coaching setting, in the doctor's office. We are harming people of everybody's size. So, so incredibly pertinent and important. In your opinion, I know you spoke about this earlier, but is there anything else that you would like to say to people who are supporting someone who is going through an eating disorder? Any sort of lasting words of wisdom that you would like to leave them with? Mm, yeah, it gets better. Stay true a consistent message. Keep looking until you find the treatment team you feel in your heart is really seeing your loved one. And if you have that spidey sense that something's wrong with the philosophy of the treater, that you as the loved one, as the carer are getting excluded or vilified, that things just don't feel right, you love this person most of anyone in the world, keep advocating. And finally, you as the carer, resource yourself as fully and wholeheartedly as you can to keep showing up every day because this is exhausting, heartbreaking work that ultimately pays off, but it requires you to take beautiful care of yourself. I couldn't agree more. 
And lastly, what words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with, especially those brave warriors out there who are continuing to fight their eating disorder day in and day out? Mm, I would say, my dear heart, keep fighting. Keep having the belief that this can get better. Keep believing that what seems impossible today may in fact be possible tomorrow. And it's only if you keep showing up and doing the work, daring, connecting, loving, hoping that this can get better, that you can heal. You are an absolute treasure, a gift to this world. And I just wish we had you here in Australia. That's what I truly wish. And I am so grateful that you've joined me today to share all of these incredible pieces of wisdom and knowledge. I really mean it, Jen. You're amazing. And I feel very privileged to have been able to have this conversation with you today. And I know that everybody who listens to this episode is going to come away from it profoundly changed. So thank you. Thank you for your wonderfully thought-provoking questions and for giving me the opportunity to share with others what I think I've learned so that they too might be helped. And it may not be clear to your listeners, but I'm a huge Augophile, absolutely obsessed with Australia. I love it so much. I've visited many times. My husband and I got engaged at the top of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And that night, agreed that if we ever had a daughter, we'd name her Sydney. And my 16 year old name is Sydney. So I'm very fond of my dear friends and colleagues in Australia. And I'm so grateful for the work you're doing. Well, can't wait to have you come to the Sunshine Coast next time that you're in Australia. And we can show you some of the wonderful work that we're doing over here. Thank you again. You are truly incredible. Mm, Thanks, Millie. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast. Your financial support will save lives. Donate at ended.org.au. I always used to think, like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head? You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. There is hope at ended.org.au.